Hi, and welcome to the Unveiled Podcast, where we discuss all things related to women to help us think Christianly in every area of life. We're committed to God's Word and are not afraid to explore tough issues in order to help us live out God's mission for our lives. I'm Sandy, and I'm here with Susie, and we serve together at Harvest Bible Church in Windsor. My training is in education and music, and Susie's passion is for women's ministry, theology, and biblical counseling. And uh, Susie, you just completed a Master's of Arts in Counseling Ministry, and I know I didn't warn you that I was going to say that, but congratulations. Oh, well, thank you. Um, That's a wonderful accomplishment, and I know that um, you pursue those things not um, just to get to get those under your belt, but to glorify God and to use um, to use that for for ministry. So um, I know that I appreciate your wisdom and um, and your ministry, and I know many many women are blessed by you. So congratulations! Oh, well, thank you, Sandy. I wasn't. Uh, you're right. I was not expecting yeah. that. <laughs> um, I thought maybe we could start with a a quick update, Susie. I know you mentioned. Um, back in, I think January, we were talking about New Year's resolutions and goals, and you had mentioned that this was a really busy season for you um, with um, some weddings and some grandchildren and some traveling, and maybe just as the summer's sort of wrapping up, maybe you could give us an update on, on how that has all gone for you. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. It has been a fantastic year. Um, My first grandbaby was born at the end of last year, December 27th. And then I had another uh, grandbaby born in June. Of course, there's babies uh, being born and time invested in that and showers that are leading up to that and gender reveals and and all sorts of fun stuff. So uh, yes, it was it's been a busy year. Plus my youngest son, fourth child, he got married in July. And so, of course, there's lots of activities leading up to that. And in the midst of that, yeah, I was finishing my master's. I was, I had an opportunity to go to England with my husband for a very delayed 25th anniversary. I had a last minute trip to Texas with my daughter to visit her friend. And then we also had a ministry trip to Romania along with all the other stuff that was happening in our lives. So it was a super busy year, incredibly blessed. So no mistakes or no regrets on that or complaints. It was uh, a, a year where I really just felt very blessed and thought, wow, Lord, I, I could be busy with all sorts of trauma or trials, but you have blessed me with all sorts of good things. And so I was so thankful. And I do remember saying at that one point that, my schedule is full. I'm not stressed out or overwhelmed, but I certainly can't add anything more to my uh, schedule. And so I certainly felt that by the end of um, the last big thing that we did was go to Romania. That was right after my son's wedding. It was a fantastic trip. Really enjoyed that. But I came home and I could physically feel it was like my body was just kind of like saying, okay, enough is enough, right? And I just had like maybe one or two days where I'm like, I almost feel depressed, but I'm like, I'm not going to, I knew what it was. I knew it was my body finally just knowing Mm -hmm. physically like, okay, all the busyness is done and, um, it, it's been good. Uh, I, I feel more clear minded. I feel like instead of just trying to stay on top of life, I'm moving forward. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's been good. And I'm so, so thankful that the Lord has carried me through all of this and for the great joy it has been 
but I am thankful to kind of just get back into regular mm. routine. And there's always, always lots to be done when you live your life on mission for the Lord. But it's it's just more of a regular kind of busy now. So yeah. it's good. Yes. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I'm looking forward to getting back into our regular ministry season as well. September's approaching. So um, just an encouragement for the women who are listening, who, who attend our church to get plugged in to a, a women's uh, Bible study or a small group at home and um, and just connect in that way. So. Yes. So talking about plugged in, we should mention on Wednesday, August 30th, our women's ministry. So not all the listeners go to our church, but if you are part of the Harvest Women's Ministry, then uh, you are invited to come to a plugging in event that we have. You can find it on our website or on our app under events. And I really, really encourage all women to attend that because that will be a great opportunity for you just to connect with Harvest Women's Ministry uh, with the women and also how you can continue to be discipled throughout the year. And as a women's ministry, one of our main things is just regular um, times to meet and be in God's word. We are going to be studying the book of Ephesians this fall. We have two different opportunities. We have a weekly group that meets on Tuesday mornings. And then we also have at-home groups that meet in the evenings or on a Saturday morning. And uh, historically, in order to help navigate business, we've met once a month, but I'm actually, we're actually encouraging people to meet in their groups uh, every other week and at minimal like every third week so that it's more often because as much as we don't want to be busy, if we aren't intentional about actually meeting in person and discipling one another, it's not quite as effective either, right? The accountability, the vulnerability is lost. And so just a little update on what we're doing this fall. And I do hope that you do get connected. If you're part of another church, I encourage you to get connected with that ministry and see what the women there are doing because it's so important to be uh, worshiping God in God's word and fellowshipping with other women where women can speak into your life and encourage you and challenge you and pray for you uh, and love on you, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's that. Mm-hmm. Yes, and it, it's a huge blessing to be part of a, of a small group and, and regular, um, yeah, regular fellowship with other believers in God's word. Absolutely. So last week we looked at the biblical call to forgiveness what that actually means and the consequences of withholding forgiveness and holding on to bitterness. We recognize it, that this all begins and ends with the cross. So today we actually want to dig deeper into this topic and hopefully help our listeners think through their own relationships and their past hurts in a new way. Um, just a quick side story. I just wanted to share this um, story about forgiveness. My uh, a family member of mine was recently diagnosed with a terminal illness and um, as she was sort of processing that uh, diagnosis she reached out to her, her siblings and asked if there was anything that that um, she needed to repent for and she asked her siblings to forgive her for any, anything that um, that she may have done and I just thought that that was a, a really beautiful story of, of um, humbling yourself and um, trying to reconcile things. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to, to quickly share that as we get into forgiveness. Um, 
So when we looked at bitterness in our last episode, Susie, you mentioned some of the consequences of having that take root in your life. You said that bitterness kills and it certainly leads to death. What would be the cause of someone not forgiving? Right, and so once again, I think we just have to recognize that if there's a need to forgive, it's because someone has been hurt, right? And so once again, just like last week, I do want to tread lightly, but I do want to tread truthfully because hurt doesn't excuse us to be bitter or vengeful or angry or to stay stuck as a victim. It, it's uh, an indication that something is wrong and so we should be moving towards Um, healing in that and that healing road uh, the road to healing can maybe look a little bit differently depending on what the offense was uh, whether or not you have access to communication with that person but one way or another we need to be moving towards that and uh, I would say uh, sometimes people don't forgive because they say if they haven't received an apology uh, or repentance then um they can't forgive. And certainly, just like we talked about last week, there is a difference between granting forgiveness and just having a heart that's willing to forgive and and not be bitter or vengeful. And uh, so I think it's important to know that and to also know that uh, in Christ, we have the power to overcome any bitterness, any hurt, and be healed from that. And um, I think sometimes people um, maybe delay repentance and forgiveness or uh, avoid that because they don't fully understand what forgiveness is. And um, I think forgiveness is the foundation of who we are as, as Christians, and therefore we want to have a, a proper understanding. And if we have been forgiven much, then we also need to forgive much to other people. Um, I once heard forgiveness being defined as the place where justice and mercy meet at the cross. And so in order to forgive, we have to recognize that forgiveness doesn't mean just shoving things under the carpet or minimizing the offense. In fact, forgiveness actually by definition means that we have to call sin for what it is and and then to recognize there is no justification for this this can't be undone in the sense that they've already committed the crime or the offense or the betrayal whatever it might be but because I love this person I'm willing to grant mercy and not do to them what they deserve, just like Christ did not do to us what we deserve. And in fact, Christ went to the extent of of paying for our sins. Uh, So we have to be willing to forgive because uh, Christ has already died for our sins. And if he's died for us, then that forgiveness is also available to others who come to him in repentance. Um, And so, yeah, let's not consider that forgiveness is weakness or forgiveness is minimizing, but forgiveness actually calls sin for what it is. And I think that's super important. I think another thing is that people don't realize that you can release bitterness and vengeance without being reconciled. There are um, some situations that you shouldn't be reconciled to a person. If that person has never repented and it's actually a serious offense, um, we shouldn't hate that person, but we also don't need to be reconciled. Like in the, let, let's think about 
cases of abuse, if that person hasn't repented, we're not going to put anyone in a position where they have to continue to be abused over and over again. Like, of course not. Or even in the in the sense of where uh, an affair has happened in a married relationship, if the person who committed the affair never repents, if they continue in their lifestyle, of course, you don't have to be reconciled to that person. And so I think uh, we have to understand that we can let go of our bitterness, we can let go of our vengeance, our personal vengeance, knowing that vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord, right? In the end, God will um, give perfect justice, and we can entrust that to him. But we don't need to look for personal vengeance against people. Um, But it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to be reconciled. And I think sometimes people are hindered uh, from offering or letting go of uh, bitterness in their lives because they're prideful. They're trying to play the role of God and they don't really trust God to be God and to be the ultimate judge and lawgiver. And so if we are wrestling with that, if we're wrestling with that pride of like, I can never forgive that person and I will always hate that person and uh, I wish that person, you know, I wish I could hurt that person. If that's our attitude, no matter what the hurt has been, we're, we're actually being prideful and we're showing that we don't actually trust God. And so in no way do I want anyone in that situation to minimize the sin that has been committed, but to just recognize like, I can't do this on my own. I don't have the power to ever undo this. I don't have the power to be healed from this. And I don't have the power to even, um, you know, show justice in this situation because God is the ultimate judge and lawgiver. So I'm just going to hand it over to God and trust him to do what he says he will do and to be who he says he is. And that means he is perfect in love and he is perfect in justice. And I don't even have the capacity to to be uh, close to that. And so I'm going to trust God with that. I'm not going to try and continue to make things right because I actually can't. That person has sinned. They refuse to repent and and I, I don't have control over this, but I trust that God does. And in that, as I also trust God to be the perfect lawgiver and the perfect judge, um, I'm patient with that, knowing that I may not see that in my lifetime. But in the end, when they face God at the end of their life, they will have to give an account for what they have done. And, and at that point, God will either give them mercy because they have repented to him or he will damn them to eternal hell if they have never repented uh, in uh, in terms of salvation. And so, yeah, I think that's that. But then on the other hand, we also have to embrace the fact that if I am a Christian, if I have been forgiven, then I can embrace my identity in Christ. I can embrace the fact that I am eternally loved by God. I am a child of God. I am a citizen of the kingdom. I have a mission. And so we let go of justice and at the same time adopt our identity and our mission in Christ so that replaces the hurt and the agony and probably the, um, uh, you know, being dehumanized in whatever hurt that was inflicted on us, we're healed by knowing who we are in Christ, right? Someone else might have tried to destroy us, but Christ heals us by giving us a new identity and a new mission. And in that we can move forward in healing. Mm. 
just as you're speaking, Susie, it's um, just a, a great reminder that um, we are different than, than the world, right? Than the world thinks when we are um, renewed in Christ, that we can, that we have that, um, that source. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So after making the decision or the choice, the feeling, um, being convicted to forgive, how do you know how to proceed after making that decision? Right. And so I think um, I actually read a book, The Peacemaker, and it was an excellent book. I've been familiar with that ministry and that concept for a while, but I actually had the opportunity to read the full book this summer. It's a book written by Ken Sand, and I think he he provides four promises of forgiveness that are very helpful because a lot of our moving forward depends on how we act and what we fill our minds with, right? And if we continue to fill our minds with hurt and just replaying the incident over and over in our minds, it becomes very powerful mm -hmm. and it can become actually bigger and worse than what the actual situation was, or it can define us and identify us and bring us back down into the pit. And so Ken uh, offers these four promises that we need to remind ourselves and maybe even repeat to ourselves after we have... Uh, chosen to forgive somebody. And the first promise is, I will not dwell on this incident. And that's where we really control our minds. And we fill our minds with truth and the truth of what God has has done for us, the truth of who we are in Christ, the truth of our mission for Christ. And uh, it's a matter of renewing, right? Put mm -hmm. off the old self and put on the new self. Mm -hmm. The second promise is, I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. And um, so I think with that one, I, I would actually just put a little bit of a, a disclaimer on that. I think as we're in the process of reconciling and changing, uh, there might be times when we have to bring up the incident again. There are, there are I think we can give some grace for healing, particularly like in the, once again, in the situation uh, where uh, one spouse has been unfaithful, mm -hmm. it's not as if that person is going to be changed overnight. They can repent, but there is a lot of renewal that needs to take place in the mind of someone who has actually had an affair, has been unfaithful to their spouse. And certainly I believe that person can be uh, changed and transformed by, by the blood of Jesus Christ. But they're going to need to renew their mind in their actions and set up new boundaries. And so as they're doing that and rebuilding their relationship with their spouse, I, I do believe that spouse has the right to occasionally bring that up and to check in and greater accountability. After an affair, certainly for a, a period of time, the, the person who was sinned against, will it will take that person time to rebuild that trust. And uh, that person does have a right and probably even an obligation to check in a little more intensely than where there has never been an affair, right? Mm -hmm. So if there's any suspicious uh, texting or social media messaging or late nights, the average person would just assume the best and wouldn't mm -hmm. even think of anything, right? But if there's been an affair, that person uh, who was offended will be a little more suspicious and rightly so mm -hmm. until the person has actually proven themselves to be changed and transformed. And so as much as in most cases, yes, that makes sense, right? Like if we've forgiven, we can't just keep bringing up that offense over and over again. 
But that process, especially in the more severe uh, situations, I do think there has to be a little bit of freedom there until there's been a tr- proven track record, right? Yep. And then thirdly, the third promise is I will not talk to others about this incident. And I think this is also very valuable because the more we talk about it, first of all, well, then we can become guilty of slander and gossip. But the more we talk about it, the more it also continues to reignite those memories. And so if the forgiveness has taken place, obviously, there might be somebody, maybe it's a biblical counselor, or a mature uh, person, Christian, that can give you wisdom and insight in processing it. So yes, if you're still in the midst of processing the situation and finding healing, you can talk to that person, but don't just go talking to everybody about it because you don't want to be a, a slanderer and you don't want to ingrain that memory into your mind more than is, is necessary. And then the fourth promise is, I will not let this instance incidents stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. And so here, I'm thinking of a situation where if reconciliation between a spouse has happened, and they've gone through the proper steps towards reconciliation and healing and renewing their mind, then you are responsible to love that person and not continue to let that hinder your relationship, right? Mm. Once again, there's a process and it takes time, but you can't forever hold that over their head and manipulate them because of that, never trust them again, or ear, or even maybe one situation could be where if um, the husband has had an affair, the woman will allow him to stay in the marriage, but then she refuses to, to ever be intimate with him again Mm -hmm. well then you haven't actually forgiven you haven't actually chosen to reconcile and so your marriage is still not intact right and so um yes if we choose to forgive we have to and um it is a situation where there has been repentance and it needs to be restored you can't keep holding uh it over their head and and allowing that to hinder your personal relationship, you move back towards trust and loving. Mm-hmm. And once again, it reminds me of one of my favorite quotes that I've, I've definitely shared here before that when it comes to uh, being betrayed, vertical trust is our goal. So first and foremost, we're learning to trust God fully in this situation and in every area of our life. Horizontal trust is the byproduct of the repentant person living faithfully and the forgiving person living lovingly. And so if you're the one that is offering forgiveness, then the way forward is not to hold that against the person anymore, but to be loving towards that person. So pour out your love. Hmm. Um, And then I also just wanted to say a few other things. I think it is important to be patient And sometimes if we try to restore the relationship too quickly, we can actually um, compromise that. And I'm personally thinking of a few personal situations that I'm not going to talk about publicly, but I think time actually helped uh, us both get to a good resolve. And yes, I, I recognize that it's comfortable, but if you jump too quickly to reconciling where there is a, a a difference of opinion or a difference of uh, the way that you do things or a pattern of life that is just very different from one another. If we jump in too quickly, I think we can be tempted to to compromise. And I think we have to be careful about that. 
um, but at the same time, not excuse that to have a bitter or hard heart. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking also of, I've certainly thought uh, about Paul and Barnabas in the past, but just this past Sunday, uh, Pastor Aaron, my husband, he preached on Acts 15, where the, um, the account of Paul and Barnabas getting into a sharp disagreement, um, is, is shared and we don't necessarily, um, have all the details, but it was a disagreement in in practice and who they were going to be ministering with. And because of that, because it was such a sharp disagreement, they actually went their separate ways. And I'm sure that wasn't comfortable. And um, it must have been hard. And I'm sure there was some hurt feelings in that. But in the end, I was thankful uh, that through that message, we were reminded that God's kingdom continued to be built. Mm -hmm. And God continued to use both Paul and Barnabas in the ministry. Mm-hmm. And I believe in the end, they were able to serve together again or be on mission together again. But there was a time when they they separated. And I think that should encourage us in our conflicts. Because one thing we have to know is conflict is inevitable. And if we never have conflict in our lives, it's probably because we don't actually live by our convictions, or maybe we haven't even actually formed our own convictions about things. And that's not good, actually. And we want to be people of conviction who are willing to stand up for our convictions and not mm-hmm. compromise those com- convictions. And if that means that conflict arises interpersonally, certainly we want to guard our own hearts and our own attitudes. But if, if our conflict results in in a divide in the relationship or at least a, a period of time where you're not as intimate together or as working as closely together, I think we have to be okay with that, as uncomfortable as that is. Ultimately, we want to be walking with the Lord humbly and prayerfully, continue to not be overly introspective, but introspective enough to see where if there's any sin, any hard-heartedness, any wrong attitude in our own life and be quick to to change that. But if we're standing and living by our convictions and conflict is a result anyways, then we move forward and we trust God to, in his timing, bring about the restoration that is needed um, without compromise, but just being able to serve the Lord. And in this situation with Paul and Barnabas, I appreciated that uh, Aaron really just brought out the fact that it wasn't a disagreement in theology. It's not as if one was teaching heresy Mm -hmm. and the other was teaching truth. It was a disagreement on practice. And because of different personalities, maybe different life experience or just different situations, we will have strong opinions or beliefs about practice. And sometimes that means we can't be working together as closely, right? Mm -hmm. And that might be hard. But in the end, um, let's just continue to stay on mission, continue to walk with the Lord. And if at any point the Lord reveals to us that we need to change our heart attitude or go back to that person and and, um, just talk things through, then let's be willing to do that. But in the meantime, let's stay on mission and not get too... Um, stressed out or, or overworked, overwhelmed by by conflict. It will happen, mm-hmm. but stay on mission. Mm. I love that you brought up the story of Paul and Barnabas and, uh, and living by conviction. And I think there's a measure of courage that you need um, to be able to live by conviction. And uh, I think you also need a measure of courage to be able to confront when there is conflict as well. So... Um, yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Um, we spoke 
last week about the consequences of unforgiveness and what are some long-term effects? We, we talked maybe about the short-term offense, effects, but what are some long-term effects of bitterness or resentment? Maybe what effects um, other family members might have of the bitter or resentful person? Yeah, it, it definitely does affect us. And last week, we talked a little bit about the, some of the physical effects. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that was maybe more based on stress. But we know that bitterness moves, is very stressful on the human body. And uh, we have to be aware of that. It, it does affect our whole being. But I decided to just look up some scriptures that warn against anger, anger or bitterness. And uh, so I'm just going to read some of that. So the first, and it's not in any particular or, order necessarily, but... Um, from Psalm 55, 2 to 4, my takeaway from that is that bitterness makes enemies. Uh, it says, attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they drop trouble upon me and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. And number two, I would say bitterness hinders friendship. Proverbs 22 verse 24 says, Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor nor go with a wrathful man. Uh, And so if you are a bitter person, people might come alongside you for a little while and try to help you. But if you stick to that bitterness, that anger, you're actually going to hinder yourself from having and having friends. And Mm -hmm. the Bible actually warns against being your friend, right? So it's not just that people give up on you. It's it's actually a warning in God's mm. word, right? And number three, I would say bitterness leads to more sin. Um, from Proverbs 29, verse 22, it says, a man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. And so don't ever deceive yourself into thinking that, well, bitterness is just in my own heart. It's not affecting anybody else. And it's not even going anywhere further. I can deal with it. No, you can't. As it says, anger causes much transgression. So Mm -hmm. just beware that your bitterness, even if you think you're hiding it in your own heart, is actually going to cause more more sin. And we don't want that for you, right? Uh, And number four, bitterness hinders sanctification. So like, yikes, these are strong warnings. Yeah. James 1, 19 to 21 says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word of God, which is able to save your souls. Mm. Uh, so yeah, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So if we're angry, we're, we're bitter in our own hearts, we're actually going to impact the righteousness of God mm-hmm. in our lives. Um, and number five, bitterness can lead to fretting and once again, more evil. Psalm 37 verse eight says, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It only tends to evil. And number six, bitterness grieves the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4, 30 to 32 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And number seven uh, says, bitterness destroy... or. This isn't the verse. This is my takeaway. It says, my takeaway was bitterness destroys a father's relationship with his children. Uh, Ephesians 6, 4 says, fathers do not, 
or do not provoke your children to anger, but bring mm-hmm. them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so, yeah, just some verses there. I'm sure we could find more, but strong warnings there yeah. about the effects of, of bitterness and or anger in our lives. Definitely destructive to hold on to bitterness and resentment. So, yeah, thanks for pointing out those warnings. Um, well, let's talk about setting good boundaries. And Susie, I've seen you set boundaries in counseling set settings where the person who's being counseled understands, for example, that you won't be answering texts and phone calls from them in the middle of the night or constantly be on call for them. Um, we set good boundaries with our children. Um, so when we've been hurt by someone else, what are some practical things that we can do to guard ourselves and the other person from recommitting the hurt? And is there a fine line between a healthy boundary and maybe holding up a constant reminder of what they've done, holding it over their head? Yeah, yeah, good, uh, good thoughts here. And so I just wanted to start by saying that uh, not everybody grows up understanding proper boundaries. Often children learn um, from their parents, right? What, how to set proper boundaries. And uh, probably if their parents have poor boundaries, that means that their parents had poor boundaries. And not that we want to pass the blame, but understand that if we haven't necessarily learned those boundaries, then maybe we need to be more intentional about learning that. And we can learn that by just asking the Lord to reveal and give us wisdom and discernment mm-hmm. by spending time with other people who mm-hmm. have good boundaries and learning from them and reading God's word. In fact, we just read a lot of verses on from the book of Proverbs, and the Proverbs have lots of good insight on, on good boundaries. So read God's word. You're going to learn a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just wanted to say that... Um, Homes are where um, children learn a lot and they learn from both observation, but they also learn from the way that we teach them. But let's not kid ourselves that if we don't set proper boundaries in our homes, then our children will pick up on that, right? Um, Homes that are filled with lots of yelling or angry outbursts or manipulation uh, rather than having reasonable conversations, children will not learn how to have good boundaries in that area and uh, sometimes when there's a a single parent home if the mother lets men come in and out of her home at all times that's going to set up a proper boundary Uh, having over busy schedules is a poor boundary right because uh, we want to have proper control stewardship over the time that we have so if we're too Mm -hmm. busy we're teaching our kids that that's okay and then of course um, if there's a home that is uh, overly flexible to the point of having no routines this also sets up poor boundaries right and we want to be balanced therefore too strict and everything is really rigid like that's gonna be stressful on our children but if there's no boundaries when kids can go to bed you know whether it's 6 p.m or midnight and it's it's random there's no boundary there that's not going to be good so flexibility is a good thing but within limits right or even the idea of generosity without wisdom right Uh, there could be the person that's just always giving to other people but maybe that's actually hindering providing for your own family or you're going into so much debt that 
that causes an extra stress. So even something like that. Mm. And so just thinking mm. about about how our home life affects us. If we're parents, let's think about how our home life is affecting our kids. And if, if there's areas of our life where we need to set more boundaries, um, let's do that. But if we've we are the adults and we're recognizing, hey, like I don't feel like I maybe necessarily have the the right amount of boundaries. I sometimes end up feeling taken advantage of by other people or I feel overwhelmed and I feel like I don't have a say in things or uh, I don't know how to say no. If some of those are your what you're feeling, then maybe that means you don't have proper boundaries. You don't know how to set them up properly. And so learn and, and, and try to get better at that. Uh, so some of that is growing up in a home that didn't set proper boundaries. And I would say number two, a big concern is people who are people pleasers rather than mm-hmm. God pleasers, right? Because if you're more concerned about pleasing people than you are pleasing God, you will have a very difficult time setting up boundaries and yeah. being able to say no to people, right? Uh, we don't want to be fearful of man. We want to rather live in the fear of God. And two books came to mind as I was thinking this because that's a whole con, you know, a conversation mm-hmm. we could have and maybe we'll have it at some point. Yep. But in the meantime, if anybody wants to learn more about uh, how to be a God pleaser rather than a people pleaser, how to overcome being fearful of man, I would encourage you to read a book by Ed Welch, Welch and it's called People Are Big and God is Small or When People Are Big and God is Small. And, and then there's another one by Lou Priolo. It's called People Pleasing, How Not to Be an Approval Junkie. So those would be books that I would recommend you get to if you find yourself um, lacking in boundaries because you are actually more of a people pleaser than a God pleaser. Mm-hmm. And the other po- important thing I think is super valuable, and we talk about this a lot in our church, is the idea of being a steward. I think there's a difference between um, setting up boundaries and being a steward. And as much as we've already been talking about setting up boundaries, I actually prefer the word stewardship because sometimes boundaries, if we just talk about boundaries, that can be more of a self-protective mechanism or it can sound self-protective or people think of you as being uh, self-protective or selfish. Or rigid uh, even. Rigid, yeah. right? Yeah. Exactly. But if you actually... I view it as being a steward that changes everything because you're remembering like I'm putting these things in place not just to make my life better but to actually glorify God and to be responsible with the things that he has entrusted to me I think being a steward causes you to think of your whole mission not just that one person or that one situation at a time I think being a steward causes you to make decisions based on God's righteousness and his glory um, instead of just Oh, I got to protect myself. Um, I think being a steward helps you to uh, realize that you don't always make decisions that are easy, but you make decisions that are best, and that includes looking out for other people and keeping them accountable, not facilitating them in their sin. Uh, being a steward is really more about who you are rather than protecting yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's actually a, a biblical counseling chart that I, I used a lot, and it was given to me by a, another biblical counselor. And I don't know if they made it up themselves or if they got it from another resource, but it's called the Y chart. And I find it very valuable to go through with my counselees and even to think about it in my own life because 
many times we get to that point of decision and uh, we have a decision to make. We can either say yes or no. We can do this or that. And the person that is a people pleaser naturally does what is easy in the beginning because they don't they want to avoid conflict. They don't want anybody to be angry with them. They want people to be pleased with them. But in the end, that decision usually ends up being leading to more hardship and it ends up being just motivated by self-protection, self-righteousness, self-glory. Whereas if you go in the other direction, maybe the initial decision is harder and it's more difficult. Maybe it causes some conflict or uh, personal sacrifice. But in the end, you know it's actually best because it's bringing glory to God and it's not bringing glory mm-hmm. to yourself. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I like to, I, I like to pull mm-hmm. that out and, and discuss that. And it's helpful even in my own mind. And so I thought, you know what, I'm not going to give you a list of boundaries, but here's some things to think about uh, in terms of being a good steward and setting up some good stewardship standards. And certainly this is not an exhaustive list, mm-hmm. but the first thing of course I thought about is you have to be a woman of prayer mm-hmm. because you're not going to get a 10-step list to every decision that you have to make. So you have to be a woman of prayer and a woman who is in the word so that God can teach you how to live. Mm-hmm. And secondly, be generous with what God has given you, but don't give or spend what you don't have, right? Uh, going into debt is probably not a good idea. Uh, number three, work hard as to the Lord, but don't get your identity from your work. Number four, fear God, not people. Number five, do what is right in God's eyes instead of following your feelings. Number six, pay attention to facts over assumptions. And here I have another resource that I use as well um, in conflict management. Many times, especially as women, we hear something or something happens to us and we immediately jump to our assumptions about that or our conclusion of that, how we feel about that. And that feeling actually becomes truth. Mm-hmm. And when you actually look back at the facts and we, you can see how far you've, you've actually swayed from the truth. And so I think it's good to start with the truth. And then you can go to the next step and say, okay, because of this thing that was said or because of this thing that happened, this is how I interpret that and this is how it makes me feel. I recognize I could be wrong, but let's have a conversation about this, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, So pay attention to facts over assumptions. Number seven, when you are afraid, anxious, worried, trust God to work out the outcome. Um, Certainly we have responsibilities, but we ultimately also want to trust God. Number eight, know the difference between your cares and your responsibilities. Uh, You can cast your cares on God. And then your responsibilities are the things that you are responsible to do. So we don't just sit back and, you know, what's that common phrase, let go and let God. Yeah. That's actually a little bit inaccurate because we we do have to fulfill our responsibility as a a child of God and someone who's on mission for God. But ultimately, we also know what things we need to know that there's certain things that we just care about. And we're going to pray to God about that and ask him to move. And then there's going to be things that I can actually do about the situation. Mm -hmm. So know the difference. And uh, number nine, use your gifts and resources to serve others, but not at the expense of your other important relationships. And so we need to 
understand the priority, right? God is our first priority. And then if we are married, our husband, if we have children, they come next. And then his extended family and friends and others, right? Our our friends should not take up more time than our husband. And our children shouldn't take up more time than our husband. That's another big one, right? That's a sensitive yeah. topic, right? But I, I see that sometimes we actually... Um, invest so much in our children that we hinder our marriage and that's mm -hmm. not a good thing, right? Mm -hmm. So know the priorities that God has given to you. And then number 10, uh, I wanted to address specifically that one question that you asked and you said, what is the difference between holding people accountable but not holding it up as a constant reminder? And so there's just a couple thoughts I had on that. And uh, just a reminder that trust takes time to rebuild. So be patient, don't expect perfection from a person right away, but don't excuse or facilitate, right? Um, the second thought I had was, it's important to clearly communicate expectations. I think so many times we get ourselves into trouble because we just assume certain things. And I was thinking uh, recently, I was in, in a conversation with someone who had moved in with a uh, kind of a distant family member and that family member was going to allow them to stay there without paying for anything, but had certain expectations about taking care of um, her child. And it just didn't seem to be very clear. And especially because this person's already been in a situation where she lived with, um, uh, with somebody that said, okay, you can pay this much towards the cost of living, but then slowly started adding more and more expectations. And as frustrating as these situations can be, we can eliminate a lot of that by just having a clear conversation. And if necessary, like write it out. You don't mm -hmm. necessarily even need a lawyer, but write yeah. out, this is the expectation from you. And this is the expectation from you. And let's live by that. And if there's ever a time that we need to reassess, bring it back to the table, but have that conversation. Don't just you know, allow people to start giving you more and more and more responsibility without actually having that conversation. Mm -hmm. It's not, they might be using you or taking advantage of you, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, similar situation, there is uh, a, a woman that I was chatting with that uh, had a relationship with a man that would, uh, was not supposed to be sexual in nature, but this person had this way of, uh, taking advantage of her her sexually and they weren't in they were first of all they weren't married mm -hmm. and they shouldn't have been doing that in the first place they weren't even dating and yet this man had that control and so I helped her put in some very clear guidelines and she tried to excuse well I don't think I can always just not go in his car and she gave reasons why I'm like that's not a good reason. Like, mm -hmm. yes, you can. You absolutely can set up your life that you are never in his car right. alone with him, right? And we try to excuse and we try to justify. But you, we set ourselves up for danger if we don't have clearly communicate expectations and clearly set up boundaries. And we wonder why we keep getting taken advantage of. Mm. We, we have to learn to say no and not to excuse or to justify or, or give reasons why, well, just this one time, I actually have to do this. Yeah. No, you don't, right? Yeah. And be willing to, to set up those clear boundaries. Mm. But I think that, once again, that means that we have to love God and his righteousness more than we love 
being loved or affirmed by people. Yeah, that's where convictions um, come in again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then thirdly, um, when we do start a new expectation or new habits within our relationships, I think it's very, very important that we don't make those exceptions. And I think we've all been in those situations where you, we want to be flexible, right? And we, mm-hmm. we make those exceptions and we all make exceptions at times, but we have to be very careful about that, especially when we're just starting a new habit. Because if you make that exception once, that person is going to expect it the next time and the next time and the next time. And uh, we have to be careful with that. Thank you. That sounded like a, a Susie list to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in, in Matthew 21, we read the account of Jesus entering the temple and driving out all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturns the tables and calls, calls them out. Uh, so he didn't come in quietly, soft-spoken, and say, you need to apologize, or even, he didn't even say, I forgive you for misusing the temple for personal gain. He drove them out. Um, so when when would be the proper time to rebuke rather than to forgive? Okay, so rebuke always comes before forgiveness, if the forgiveness isn't, or the repentance isn't freely given, right? So sometimes you do have to rebuke first. Mm-hmm. Um It doesn't always have to be strong. It depends on the situation. But I think anger should always be because of the holiness of God has been profaned, not because we're personally offended. If it's just a personal offense and you blow up like that, then it's Mm. probably not the right kind of anger. (laughs) Um, And then anger is also just when we are protecting the name of God or one of his holy or one of his innocent people, Mm. right? So if, if we see a child being violated, of course, we're not going to sit back and say, let me go pray about this. No, you act Mm. quickly and with power and strength. Uh, So some reasons to come in strong um, very clearly when God's character is being publicly profaned, when a vulnerable person that is created in the image and likeness of God is being violated, and really any blatant public sins can be immediately addressed. Mm. Good. Would you say there is a difference in how we treat believers versus unbelievers when we forgive? Um, So is there maybe a higher standard for other Christians? Well, I think in some ways there is because, as it says in Ephesians 4.32, that we are to forgive as we ourselves have been forgiven. So Mm -hmm. in that sense, yes, because we have experienced it ourselves, there is a higher expectation to, to forgive, to repent, because that's, that's the gospel. But certainly our desired outcome is always the same, whether it's an unbeliever or a believer. We, we desire restoration. We des- desire that people admit when they are wrong and um, to be able to offer forgiveness. And it's an off- awesome opportunity to put the gospel on display as mm-hmm. we do that with unbelievers, right? But I think we have to be careful about expecting, because if we expect it, that sets us up for disappointment. And certainly we have to recognize that God's laws apply to both believers and unbelievers. And so that in that sense, yeah, we have the same expectations of people. We we can't uh, just permit an unbeliever to tell lies, to be unfaithful and not to address that. We would address that in the same way that we would address that in an 
uh, and a person who is a believer because those are all offenses Mm -hmm. that hinder a relationship. So on the one hand, we have the same expectations, the same law that applies to believers also uh, applies to unbelievers. But as Christians, we do know that because we have been forgiven much, we also need to forgive others. Mm. Okay, so a question here about about wives, um, wives who might be in a difficult situation, maybe with a difficult husband, um, someone who might be angry, or even a man who is not leading his family uh, seriously. How can wives live in forgiveness in these in these tough circumstances? Right. So uh, first of all, in these difficult situations, I do think it's important to consult a wise friend or a small group leader or a uh, an elder, biblical counselor, and discuss that difficult situation so that an outside perspective can help you determine whether you are in a difficult situation mm-hmm. or if you are in an abusive situation. Difficulty is hard and it will cause a lot of suffering, but that in itself is not a reason to separate. Um, in fact, I, I challenge wives to endure a lot, not because I like it. In fact, I think it, it makes me very sad when I see women going through a lot, but I uphold the sanctity of marriage in a very high regard. But I believe if it is a ma- matter of abuse, um, in those situations, if I'm counseling a woman, I would call in a pastor, an elder to seek counsel. And if the church affirms it, then she is free to leave. Uh, Of course, I do consider the urgency here. So if this is a woman that's lived in this subtle abuse manipulation for many, many years, it's not an immediate danger for her. And so then I do have time to go talk to a pastor, elder, and, and get their input on how to handle the situation. But Obviously, if it's a dangerous situation and she could be harmed uh, imminently, then, of course, I would feel free to say, you need to leave, yeah. and then let's bring Pastor Elder into the situation. But because we believe that marriage is uh, under God between one man and one woman, I do believe we have to be very careful about just running forward with um, divorce or separation without allowing the church to help in that mm. situation. I think the church has authority there. Because you have promised under God in the presence of many witnesses that you're going to, you know, stick with this person for better or for worse. Uh, And sadly, I I must say that I have found that women who are legitimately in an abusive situation are usually more hesitant to leave. uh, Whereas women who are just in a difficult situation are often looking for an excuse to leave. And they're less likely to actually listen to the input because they just want to make it sound as bad as possible so that the church will feel sorry for them and say, oh yeah, you can leave. Like I know I, and, and sadly I've heard Christians say this, well, doesn't God want us to be happy? Mm. Well, oh my, like Mm. you're not always going to be happy even in marriage. Right. And sometimes God has called us to live in difficult situations. I actually heard another biblical counselor explain the passage of first Peter three, uh, in regards to a marriage. And it was, it was, really powerful. And I've used this uh, with some of my own counselees. But just listen to this. First Peter 3 uh, says, wives, be subject to your own husband so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the 
clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy woman who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So, of course, we could, uh, you know, we could break all those verses down. But my main idea here is that Paul is, or Peter is encouraging wives to continue to respect their husbands, to to submit to them, to be more concerned about their inner beauty, um, even if their husbands are not believers. Mm-hmm. And so to be married to a person who is not a believer or or is not as strong of a believer or is not on living on mission as a believer, that is a difficult situation, but it is not reason for divorce or separation. And so in that sense, then you are called to continue to respect him. And that's, that's challenging, but that's a difficult situation. Uh, It's not an abusive situation. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in, if we move uh, along to verse 13, this is where it's kind of mind blowing. So think of the difficult situations that we could be in. And Sandy, you mentioned some of those uh, by saying like, maybe it's just a, a passive husband and, um, uh, you know, a husband who um, doesn't lead his family, who might be angry, maybe, yeah, mm-hmm. has a, a temper problem. Mm-hmm. And so then this is what it says in verse 13 of First Peter 3. It says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil." And when I heard this other biblical counselor explain this in regards to a a difficult marriage situation, she explained it in such a way, she said, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. So if the wife who is in a difficult situation, her husband isn't leading, her husband is being passive, her husband Mm -hmm. maybe has a poor work ethic, her husband uh, doesn't read the Bible, he, he doesn't really... He's passive about going to church. He uh, isn't training up the kids as as he should. He's um, he's lazy. He he doesn't compliment her. He um, he has more of a temper than what would be valued within that marriage. It is better to do good if that is God's will than for doing evil. So think about that. If you are still in this difficult situation and God has not yet sanctified your husband to the point that even God's word would call a husband to be, if you suffer because of that, but you are continuing to be a a submissive and respectful wife, if God hasn't removed you from that situation, if God hasn't changed your husband, that is actually God's will for you to be in that marriage. Mm. Even in that 
difficult situation. And it's better to respect him and to honor him than for doing evil. And because we're talking about bitterness, doing evil could be a form of bitterness, right? Mm -hmm. Being bitter, being resentful, not respecting him, slandering him, being distant from him. That's evil. Mm -hmm. No, we are called in difficult marriages even to do good. And even if that causes suffering, to know that that's God's will. And we don't know the ultimate purpose of that. Maybe there's sanctification in our own life that we need to experience. Maybe it's just in time, God's going to continue to use your godliness, your inner character, your gentleness, your respect to actually shape him in a way that being angry and bitter could never have accomplished. Mm -hmm. And so as much as, first of all, I want to say I'm not excusing uh, abuse. I'm not saying stay in an abusive relationship. No, absolutely go get help if that's the case. But if it's a difficult situation, don't give up. Don't get bitter. Ask and trust God to be the lover of your soul, the healer of your your hurts, and to give you the strength to fill you with his goodness, his righteousness, so that you can continue to do good in your marriage because it's actually God's will. Mm, and how beautiful that that we have that in his word, right? That um, that God would, would give us that hope mm. for women and who are in those situations. I do want to say it's not God's ultimate will for you to be in that situation because obviously God's ultimate will is uh, for our sanctification and also the sanctification of our husband and Ephesians 5 puts on a whole list of ways that a husband is to live for his um, for the glory of God by loving his wife and and sacrificing for her but if God hasn't removed that yet if God hasn't yet shaped him and sanctified him in a sense that is God's will right if that's Mm -hmm. God's will it says in verse 17, yep. he still got you there for a reason. We don't know how God is going to end up using that ultimately to produce his ultimate purpose mm-hmm. in your life and even in the life of your husband, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah. No, I think that's that's a great word that we can take with us today as we wrap up the podcast. And uh, we just pray that you've been blessed by this conversation today. Maybe something was difficult to hear, so we encourage you to pray about it and to seek the Lord about it. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So we thank you for listening once again as we rebuild biblical womanhood from the foundation up. Mm-hmm.